This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. So here we are, season three of Driven by Data, the podcast. I'm delighted that you've decided to tune in and rejoin us. We've got some absolutely fantastic content coming your way. So all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season three. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Randy Bean, who is the founder and CEO of New Vantage Partners. So, Randy, thank you very much for joining us. Carl, it's my pleasure. No, pleasure is, is all ours. Really looking forward to this, Randy. So, where we always start is by asking our guests to give themselves a, a brief intro into their background and, I guess, journey up until this point in time, if you would. Sure, absolutely. Well, most recently, I'm the author of uh, Fail Fast, Learn Faster, Lessons in Data-Driven Leadership in an Age of Disruption, Big Data, and AI. And I came to write that right in the middle of the COVID epidemic during the winter of uh, 2021 because I couldn't go anywhere, couldn't travel. (laughs) It was cold and dark in Boston here in the USA. In terms of my career, uh, I've actually been in the data field for uh, more than a few decades. Uh, And I started with a major bank, which is now part of Bank of America. And I was actually trained as a COBOL and assembler programmer. But I wasn't so much interested in the programming, I was interested in the data. And at that time, I was responsible for all of the deposit data. And I asked the management, I said, what do you do with this data? And they said, oh, you know, the regulators make us hold on to it for seven years and then we're free to destroy it. And I thought like, wow, what a lost opportunity. And ever since then, I've been working with organizations to help them understand and derive business value from the data that they have. So worked in banking, worked for a company called uh, Hard Hanks, which was an early pioneer in database marketing. I ran the North American financial services practice helping all the major banks and insurance companies understand their customer relationships. I went out to Silicon Valley in the internet era and did two venture-backed startups as a founder, including a Kleiner Perkins company. So that was exciting. When it all came crashing down in uh, 2001, I started a company called New Vantage Partners. And the idea was that it would be former C executives from industry that have been responsible for data advising people that now sat on the chair. So it would be small in terms of size, about a dozen or so partners, but deep in terms of expertise. And at various points in time, we had as part of our team, uh, former, because the chief chief information officer often owned data back when we started the firm. So chief information officer from firms like Citigroup, MetLife, JP Morgan, Bank of America, among others, and then as it evolved into uh, the CDO role, people that had led data and the analytics uh, in that capacity. Nice. Thank you very much for the the context. So I guess for anyone that doesn't know, and I'm not sure there'll be that many listeners that aren't familiar with you or, or your firm, Randy, but just give us a little bit more detail around kind of the types of work that you were doing, if, if you would. 
Yeah, at, at a high level, we help organizations leverage data as a business asset, help them become data-driven, help them build data cultures and innovate with data in their businesses at a more tactical level if you take that down a level. It's work around data strategy, work around data governance or data enablement, as we often call it these days, uh, working with the data management issues and a lot of change management because for organizations, particularly leg legacy organizations that become data-driven, it requires change and that requires transformation. And that, for most organizations, that's actually by far the hardest part of the process. One thing I left out in the introduction is I've been doing a lot of writing over the years, particularly when the term big data started being commonly used and the wider world started caring about data. So in 2014, 2015, I wrote a monthly column in the Wall Street Journal. I've continued that in Forbes and contributed about three pieces a year to Harvard Business Review and about six pieces a year to MIT Sloan Management Review. Nice, nice. Yeah. And I also know that you're um, quite active in the kind of CDO community space, right, with events and stuff like that. Just give us a bit of insight into that and I guess the, the motivation for you behind doing all of that and the research that you produce and, and things like that. Okay, there's uh, several things there. So um, the first CDO for a major bank actually came out of our firm in 2009, and that was at Citigroup. So their enterprise CDO had been one of our partners. So from day one, was very much attuned and clued into what organizations were thinking about. We've served as interim chief data officers at some Fortune 1000 companies. But the other things that have been involved with uh, for nine years have been involved with the MIT chief data officer officer symposium organizing and hosting their CDO keynote panel. So over nine years now, it's been about 45 Fortune 1000 chief data officers from organizations that range from Walmart to Best Buy to uh, the major banks, General Motors, General Electric, Eli Lilly, on down the line, American Express. In addition to that, have been working with organizations such as Carinium, uh, based out of London, on their um, global chief data officer events, just uh, hosted and organized two keynote panels for their event in Boston with uh, chief data officers from Horizon, Colgate, Palmolive, uh, Sun Life, American Express, um, BNY Mellon, uh, Morningstar, TD Bank, among others. And in addition to that, uh, I organized a, a series of CDO roundtables. So just had the most recent one last week. And these include CDOs from places like Universal Music, Invesco, State Farm, uh, Bank of China, Best Buy, uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, Scotiabank, uh, Kimberly Clark, um, et cetera, Eli Lilly, a long list. Yep, absolutely. So I guess it's for all of the above reasons, Randy, that we're very keen to kind of get into the chief data officer role as it now stands um, and, and your kind of experience around that and seeing how it's evolved and the struggles and the challenges and the opportunities, etc. So obviously that role in of itself has changed quite drastically over the last 10 years or so and probably even longer if you think about, you know, 2009 when the first CDO for City bank came out of, of your firm just give us a quick summary of what you've kind of witnessed in that time the kind of high level you know bits of of, of gold yeah i uh, wanted to grab some data so that i can give you a sense <laughs> of some of the things that have happened with the uh, chief data officer role 
So we've been conducting a survey for a dozen years. We're in the process of conducting our, our current survey right now, which will be published on or about January 1st. And when we first conducted the survey in 2012, only 12% of the Fortune 1000 organizations that we surveyed had a chief data officer. By 2022, that number had increased to 73.7%. So it's a role that's become largely adopted. But at the same time, it's not without its challenges. One of the questions that we have been asking in recent years, because we've seen the turnover in the chief data officer role, Tom Davenport and I wrote a piece in Harvard Business Review, where we spoke of the average CDO tenure being between uh, 20 months and two years. But the question we ask is about the success of the chief data officer role. And uh, in 2020, only 27.9% of the respondents said that the role was successful and well-established within their organization. And the remaining 70-odd um, percent that they were still struggling uh, with making that role successful. The good news is by 2022, 40.2, uh, so there'd been a pretty significant increase, indicated that the role was successful and established. <clears throat> but that still meant that you had 60% of organizations that were struggling uh, to make the role successful. Two other things we've seen relative to the chief data officer role. role. One is the incorporation of analytics into that responsibility. So the shift in recent years to not just being a CDO, but being a CDAO. And then the other thing is the shift from defensive to offensive activities, meaning that um, Initially, when many of the CDO roles were established, particularly in financial service, there was a heavy um, focus on compliance and regulatory issues. And in recent years, that's shifted significantly to focus on business growth, establishing new products and services, uh, serving uh, customer constituencies uh, in a more active fashion. So we've seen a, a significant increase and the amount of time that organizations are spending on offensive activities relative to uh, defensive activities for the chief data officer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't know um, whether you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the term, but we've heard quite a lot around, you know, the chief data officer role, you know, version 1.0 and, you know, now we're four, four, five or six, <laughs> whatever number we're, we're up to. Um, but yeah, that's definitely been a, you know, an, an evolution from risk and compliance and you know regulation to the more offensive and, and analytic side of, of the coin very very much so i guess in your opinion then what does the future of the cdo role look like if we're going to continue to get value out of this yeah i mean i'd say it's um a little bit of a complex answer i, I think the uh good news is that there's a Recognition among major organizations of the importance of data. So that's really a foundational starting point. And as a result of that, I think that there's a growing recognition of the uh, necessity for a data leader, hence the uh, chief data officer or chief data and analytics officer. Where there still isn't clarity and agreement on is uh, what are the what should be the roles and responsibilities of that function and where should that function report organizationally. One thing that we have seen is that initially many of the chief data officer roles reported into the te technology side of the organization, the CIO. We've seen a significant shift. So now a majority of uh, chief data officers that we see are reporting uh, into the business or closer to the business, and in many instances becoming a peer of the CIO. So that's all 
good from the perspective of the autonomy and independence of the chief data officer role. <clears throat> but again, it is a change role. And, you know, when the CIO was first established that role about 35 years ago, the joke in industry is CIO stood for career is over. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it shouldn't be um, a total shock that, you know, chief data officers face a lot of headwinds and a lot of challenges, you know, as we talked about the outset in terms of the turnover, you know, with some of the major banks, it's no exaggeration. It's actually the literal truth to say that they're on their sixth and seventh iterations of people holding that role. Um, in companies that have adopted the role in the past few years, uh, there tends to be less of a degree of turnover, but then at the same time, those C CDOs haven't hit that 20 to 24 month uh, uh, you know, checkpoint yet. So we'll see what happens, but regardless, the demand for data is greater than ever. The recognition of the importance of data is greater than ever. So. Uh, there's no question that there's going to be opportunities and growth and further, I would expect further clarification and consolidation of what it means to be a chief data officer. It's not going away. Yeah, yeah, absolutely uh, agree. I guess based on all of the research that you've been involved in and your, your firm's done, um, and then all of external research that there's out there, you know, a lot of the the failings in quotation marks, you know, normally point to things like culture and literacy and, and things like that. Um, what has that failure been in, in your eyes? What, what's that word? Where's that come from? Because, you know, we talk about why they don't work and we, we pinpoint those things. But is there any specifics around that that you think kind of hold more weight than anything else? Yeah, let me speak to that in two ways. Let me talk to speak at first about some of the challenges that organizations face in terms of becoming data-driven, the context, and then I'll speak to some of the challenges that chief data officers in particular face. So we ask a series of questions each year, and we ask yes or no to, to keep it simple. So we say, are you driving business innovation with data? Actually, more than half, 56.5% responded yes. Are you competing on data and analytics? Less than 50%, 47.4% said yes. The remainder said no. Are you managing data as a business asset? Only 39.7% said yes, and roughly 60% said not yet. Are you, have you created a data-driven culture? Only 26.5%, just over a quarter said yes, roughly three quarters said that they weren't there yet. And have you established a data culture? Uh, only 19.3%, roughly one in five said yes, and roughly 80% said that their organizations weren't there. And we asked what, when we asked what was the principal challenge to becoming data-driven, only 8% said it was technology and roughly 92% said it related to cultural factors, people, process, change management, organizational alignment, et cetera. So what, with all of that being said, um, you know, I, I can speak at length for hours on this topic. I would say two things. Unless you're delivering business value, unless an organization's delivering business value from their data investments, they should really seriously question whether they should make be making investments in data, okay? So that's getting back to the fundamental point of why we're here, and that is to help grow the business, help extend the business, et cetera. So for chief data officers to be effective, they need to be closely aligned with the business. They need to understand what the key business questions are and focusing on those questions. 
If the answers to those questions only require a small amount of data, so be it. It's not necessary to boil the ocean if um, you know decisions are made uh, based upon a smaller set of, of data. So the chief data officers that have been most successful in our experience are those who work closely with the business. They start small by identifying one question or two questions, uh, making sure they can get the data in the quality format that can be used to answer those questions. And that builds a level of trust. And when they repeat that process, that builds credibility and then eventually momentum. I'll just tell one last story here and then I'll pause. And that story is, is that when I go into organizations, typically I meet with the data teams and they talk about all the capabilities that they've created. And I'm like, wow, that's very impressive. I meet with the technology teams and they talk about the data platform, the engineering, the architecture work they're doing. I'm like, wow, that's great. And then I meet with the line of business leaders and they say, well, you know, frankly, we don't trust the data. We're not receiving the data we need or in a timely fashion or having confidence in that data. So obviously there's this gap that exists between these capabilities that are created and basically the ability to use these capabilities to answer business questions and to engender trust on the part of the business leaders. So I think that's the challenge that organizations face. And I think that's, you know, often I've heard, well, you know, the business leaders, they don't try to understand, you know, what data meshes and data fabrics and data literacy and data democratization, all that means. But, you know, that's not really necessarily their job. Yes, they can uh, make an effort to understand those things. But really, the data owners, the data leaders should make the effort to make sure that the business leaders understand what's available uh, and what formats and go the extra mile to, to build the confidence and relationships with the business leaders. From my experience, that's what proves to be most successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find it fascinating because we're constantly having this discussion around value right and if we're investing in data analytics and driving these capabilities and initiatives then there's got to be value i guess what from the hundreds of conversations that i have every year it seems that being able to quantify what that value is and then articulate that seems to be a major challenge for most data leaders have you kind of come across that have you managed to pinpoint why that's often a difficulty? Well, I think people tend to speak in the jargon that they know. You know, my wife's in the medical field and she's always talking about ERs, OWAS, ORs, <laughs> post-op, you know, this and that. And I'm just like, you know, just I, I profess not to understand. In the same way, when people start talking to me about data mesh, data fabrics, etc., even if I think that I understand or think that I have some understanding, I'm like, I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? And they try again. I said, like, can you explain it in business terms? It's often a struggle. Uh, you know, if you come from a technical background or you come from an analytics background, it's often you often assume that people understand or speak the same language that you do. And uh, to have credibility, often you need to be able to talk in terms of increasing uh, customer awareness, more effective treatment of customers, uh, greater acquisition and retention of customers, um, you know, improving profit laws, EBITDA, you know, whatever the measures are that business leaders speak, you know, need to be able to translate uh, from the data jargon into the business uh, language. You know, there's a story uh, from a number of years ago, at the time, a data executive that I was working with uh, 
related that he had gone to the president of the company and said, I need $25 million to build an MDM environment. And the executive responded, I have no idea what an MDM environment is, request denied. And until you can come back and explain to me what it is you want in terms of the business value of the organization, how it's going to help us achieve revenue and profit growth, uh, I'm not interested. Do you find, Randy, that the the ability or i guess the challenge around actually quantifying value because obviously i think there's been a lot of investment into data analytics initiatives that may have not provided as much return as one hoped or expected and that's probably bred obsessions probably too too strong of a word but um you know business leaders very rightly now saying well why should we continue to invest in this when we're not quite getting out of it what we thought we were going to first time around or whatever the case may be but you know the whole piece around return on investment and that not always being a straight line from activity to you know dollar signs as, as it were um has there been much kind of research done around that in terms of the challenges that these CDO types of personas face in, in kind of quantifying the, the actual scope of their value or, or their role in that creation of value? Yeah, you know, I wrote an article for CDO Magazine about a year ago, and I, and I wish I could remember the uh, terminology that had been created. I'd have, I'd have to search for it, which would take a few minutes. But the CDOs or a couple CDOs said, you know, the measure shouldn't be return on investment. It should be. And they had this term that was something like path to value, which was still a little bit like motherhood and apple pie. But the idea was, well, you can't quantify it yet within a quarter and you can't really quantify it within a year. But if you look at like a longer time horizon of three to five years, you can uh, quantify this. Well, you know, that that's probably true and it's the right idea and the right intent, uh, but it does run up against, you know, I, I, I heard this story last week um, and, you know, I related it to a couple of people and we had our CDO roundtable um, last week and said that, you know, I didn't know whether this was a one-off or a trend. And what had happened was I got a call early last week from a chief data officer. Often I get calls from chief data officers who've said, well, you know, I've uh, hit that 20 to 24 month uh, wall and now I'm looking for my next role. You know, do you see anything that's out there? But this call was a little bit different. This call was the CDO was saying, um, yes, you know, my position, you know, I'm no longer in the role. My position's been eliminated as has the data and analytics function within our Fortune 1000 organization. And I said, what? I said, that that's pretty extreme. I haven't seen that happen since 2008, 2009 during the financial crisis when, you know, you had banks cutting hundreds of thousands of jobs. And unless it was uh, essential to keeping the lights on, a lot of those jobs were eliminated. So um, he said, you know, the organization said because of the economic headwinds, they need to focus on things that could deliver quarter to quarter value. So I'm right now taking this as a one-off and an aberration. But what I said to uh, the CDOs later last week when I was speaking with them, if I hear of another example, I'll now consider it a trend. So you know, those that's something to, to watch out for because when things get times get tough, if they do get tough, often um, things that can't demonstrate value in a very short term. Uh, come under greater scrutiny. So uh, don't know whether that's going to happen, but maybe something to 
keep the antenna tuned for. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've been very vocal around topics like this because I think, um, you know, there's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of organizations out there that pay lip service to be wanting to be data driven, right? Um, and typically a downturn of any kind starts to weed out those businesses, right? And all of a sudden full teams are being disbanded. Um, and it's like, well, how much do you really want to be data driven? But the flip side of the argument, I'm sure for them is, well, if we can't see value out of this, why would we keep investing in it? And if our economic future is uncertain, then, you know, so it's a real fascinating conversation, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, your point about lip service is very well taken because, you know, that's one of the measures of whether an organization is doing the things that it really needs to do to build a data culture, become data driven, or whether it's just talking about it um, for the benefit of stakeholders and the uh, business press, or whether they're um, sticking with it for the long, long term and doing the making the tough decisions and weathering. Um, varying business climates. The other thing is I, I don't hear it so much anymore, but four or five or six years ago, I used to hear the refrain, oh, another data project, <laughs> you know? So it was this idea of, yeah, you know, we're going to spend more money. We're going to build this or that data environment. Uh, it's going to fail in some fashion or people won't be able to get the data out with the timeliness they needed. And then three or four years later, everybody will come back with, you know, some different, um, take on that in terms of, oh, you know, here's a more agile capability or, you know, um, here's something that's uh, uh, federated or unfederated in some fashion that will provide our end users what we need. So I don't hear that so much anymore, but that used to be the refrain, another data project. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we're at this point now where, you know, your some of the stats that you've you've just kind of talked us through earlier, obviously all of that pinpoints in one direction that businesses still have a lot of appetite for this. And I think actions often speak louder than words. And most businesses are still plowing a lot of money into this, despite the fact that also at the same time claiming that they're not getting as much value as they thought they would, right? Which always fascinates me because I'm kind of like, we're in this weird middle ground where, you know, complaining they're not getting enough value, but still seemingly really bought in and enthused by this prospect of becoming data driven. Um, have, you, have you kind of landed on what the reasons why for that, or is it because it's cool to be talking about trying to become data driven? Well, it's it's a little bit complex. Uh, so, so first of all, particularly financial services organizations have to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in data just for compliance and regulatory and defensive purposes. So, um, you know, that's a big part of the investment there. But moving to be innovative in the use of data, you know, that's where organizations, um, you know, continue to struggle, uh, you know, in part because there isn't a playbook, in part because they're, uh, you know, doing new things and being inventive, you know, they're, they're expend experimenting this notion of fail faster and faster. So a number of organizations have done things, and this isn't new, but they've done things like set up centers of excellence, analytic sandboxes, um, things of, of that kind in which they, they, um, you know, they pioneer new capabilities and they see what gains traction. And as those things gain traction, they move them into production. 
but it's ironic because those things can go in cycles. Uh, worked with a major, well, I, I guess I can say it, Wells Fargo Bank. And in the early 2000s, their proximity to Silicon Valley and the emergence of the internet, they were at the forefront in terms of they create over 10 years, they created the largest market capitalization of the U.S. bank. They had by far the largest cross-sell ratios. They referred to their branches as stores. And they had really infused uh, data within into all aspects of the customer experience. So they had a good understanding of what products and services all of their customers use, what their needs were, and what products and services to offer. But um, as can sometimes happen with this thing, it got so embedded in the culture that then there were abuses where customers were signed up for new services that they hadn't specifically given permission for, and this created a scandal. And uh, then the regulators came in and they really shut down a, a lot of the, those more uh, active or offensive tactics. So, um, you know, an organization can be very aggressive and innovative, but in some respects, you know, cross the line at some point in time. And it, it can be a, a, a narrow, you know, it can be a thin distinction. For example, you know, if you look at Facebook, you know, Facebook's grown tremendously. They capture data. They create various type of user experiences. But at what point does it go too far? You know, it was alleged that, you know, Facebook was capturing data and then sharing it with organizations like Cambridge Analytica. So you can be innovative, but you have to manage that innovation in a responsible and ethical fashion. You know, it's it, it gets complex, but, um, you know, the, the intent is good. Um, and organizations do need to innovate with data to differentiate themselves and be more competitive. And companies like Amazon and the retail space have completely reinvented the industry through the use of data. Companies like Capital One in many ways and credit cards and financial services have used data and analytics to reinvent what's possible in banking. But, um, you know, it's you, you have to do it in a thoughtful um disciplined responsible fashion yeah absolutely i mean do, do you see the role of the cdo you talked about change and transformation but fundamentally you know is data going to be at the core of transforming how businesses operate you spoke a lot about innovation there and you know that's obviously all about new things and you know bringing in maybe new revenue streams or new products or new markets or whatever the the, the case maybe is that where you see the role of the the chief data analytics officer going to be able to kind of quantify how they're helping the business do that as opposed to what might have come before it which was even more regulatory in nature or you know just someone out there building a load of you know platforms or models or dashboards or whatever the case may be well i'd say that um data is great and great to have because it's information you know, it's more data points, it's more things that you can look at to make a decision. But at the same time, you know, it's not a substitute for human judgment, you know, whether it's use of data in professional sports or data in, um, actually, I'm writing an article about data in the arts and entertainment industry, you, you know, you have to combine data with human judgment. And I did a uh, interview last year with a, uh, a, a person that had had a long and diverse field had been a um, rock music 
promoter and tour manager for people like Bob Dylan and the band. And then oh, they've been a film producer for people like Martin Scorsese, his early films. They actually produced The Last Waltz. And then they became a uh, technology innovator and then a, a professor at the Annenberg School at University of Southern, Carol Southern California. And his comment was, you always have to use uh, human judgment and creative thinking in combination with data, because ultimately, um, if it's just data, you know, you're not going to need people. You can just have algorithms that can do everything and you, you won't even need people in those jobs. Yeah, I think sometimes we we kind of forget about that whole human concept and i've had many a conversation actually on this podcast around the whole you know combining data and creativity and i think it's a fascinating um fascinating conversation because on the one hand you know we're constantly talking about we need to be data driven we need to have more data points to help us make decisions but ultimately you know the the power of people and intuition and experience within you know it's helps it enables decisions and at the end of the day that's kind of where, where the book stops right so um Going back to the value point, just something that you triggered when you were you were talking there, Randy. But in your opinion, should the CDAO be able to talk in dollars and cents, pounds and pence, in terms of the value that they're adding, or can is there ways that they can add value beyond that is relatable to actual tangible commercial figures? You know, that that's it's a really good question because. You know, on the one hand, I'd be inclined to say yes, but on the other hand, you have people making it up to a certain degree or are stretching too far. You know, there's a lot of discussion about monetization of data efforts, but when we, we stopped asking the question because we asked it for years and years, and we don't get only 5% or so respondents saying they were actually doing anything in terms of monetization. Wow. Uh, it's probably increased now, but, um, you know, you you you, you can't force it you you can't try to say oh you know we've uh i mean you can probably quantify cost cost savings but in terms of the offensive activities you know it's very hard to say oh you know it's contributed you know x amount to, to our bottom line um you you can probably point to increases in customer growth increases in customer retention improvement in cross-sell ratios increases in customer satisfaction and maybe by implications, you know, how that impacts the business from a bottom line perspective. So, you know, I think there's some intermediate steps, um, you know, in part because I came from a database marketing and CRM background, you know, I'm a big proponent uh, of using data to, you know, improve the customer experience, improve customer treatment, customer satisfaction, and use that to, to build the customer franchise because I think that that's very measurable. And, you know, if customers are ultimately the people that most organizations serve, um, you know, I think that if you can attach yourself to improvements in customer value, you can make a good case for the value that you're bringing from the data investments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know we talked about the, the kind of change and transformation and literacy and cultural components. Um, I guess how how much of the CDAO role is kind of change management, change agent, and I guess how do you now ensure that you realize that that change is heading in the right direction? You start to get the adoption of you know the work that you're trying to drive. 
Yeah, I believe that it's fundamentally fundamentally is a uh, change management and transformation role, and those CDOs that are most successful understand that. You know, if you're a legacy organization that's existed for generations or even for well over a hundred years, uh, you know, change doesn't become it doesn't come easy. You've been used to operating in a traditional fashion, you know, if you're um, Amazon or even Capital One, which is basically a 30-year-old bank, it, it's much easier because you don't have that historical baggage. You can start from, a, um, you know, a, a greenfield in terms of um, building out data capabilities and having that be central to the culture and the organization. But if you're, you know, whatever, I don't even know if it exists, I was going to say Lloyd's Bank, but, you know, whatever the case may be, Barclays Bank or, uh, you know, BNP Paribas or Bank of America or whatever the case may be, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a different way of thinking about things. It's a different way of organizing, you know, data flows through an organization from uh, production to consumption, you know, new data is created along the way. So you need to think about what that entails in, in a serious fashion and put in place the policies and practices to, to, to manage data in, in that context and start to develop a consciousness of you know data that it is an asset for the organization that should be treated as such and managed um, in that fashion throughout the process. Mm. I guess given your kind of inner circles and networks that you're you know, you know kind of work with and speak to and all of the, the the businesses and organizations that you've done work for over the years on the notion that this then is you know a change management transformation cultural literacy exercise um in the main why is it that you think so many businesses tend to start in the wrong place and to give you some context on that question so given what we do day to day right in the hiring of data leaders what we often see quite clearly is that most businesses they start in the wrong place in regards to where they're this type of skills they're looking for for the type of activities they think they should be doing so obviously you know at a top level this is They've either been ill-advised or they've had no advice and they think what they're doing is right, right? But broadly speaking, they start in the wrong place and therefore they go to market looking for someone that's got a certain type of skill set. They bring them in. They start to do that those types of activities that they've been hired to do. Lo and behold, that change, transformation, culture, literacy piece has, hasn't been part of that, that journey. And therefore, you get to the point where there's been no value here and... 20 to 24 months later right off they off they go have you kind of got any practical tips or you know what what kind of practical advice do you give to business leaders about the reality of what they actually need when they're looking for a cdao or equivalent um versus what they think they might need you know do you, do you see much disparity between between that yeah that's a good question um and i'm thinking out loud here uh so you know, one of the things that strikes me is that historically, the, the data job, and I'm drawing a distinction between the analytics component, but the data job, what it meant to most organizations was, in some fashion, building a data environment or building a data repository. So when people thought about what was the data job, it was like to build a data warehouse or a data lake or create the data architecture, something where people could access all this information. 
But the problem was was they it was really either difficult for them to access the information. They couldn't figure out what they were supposed to be accessing or how to access it, or you know, it it just was too intimidating, so so people didn't do it. And, you know, it, it it didn't really start from, you know, the point that I mentioned before was starting with the business users and saying to ask one particular question, what data do you need? And, you know, maybe that's only four pieces of data as opposed to, you know, 4,000 or 400,000. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's understanding what data makes a difference. You know, not all data is created equal. And, you know, often work with organizations and say, you know, what, what are your most critical data elements or how many what is that, how, how many critical data elements do you think there are? If an organization says like 10, you know, that in theory is good. If they say like, well, it's 100,000, that, that's bad because you need to prioritize that they're not all created equal. So coming back to, to your question, um, you know, I think that, you know, it, it starts with business leaders. Uh, the person in the data role needs to understand that they're basically supporting the business leaders and supporting the end customers of their organizations, that all of their activities need to be in, in support of, of those efforts, that it's going to require changing the culture of the organization, the um the actual organization so that there's greater alignment between what people are doing and the outcomes that the organization is trying to achieve. And no organ, no people, people in general do not like change. Um, you know, even when they profess to like change or pay <laughs> lip service to use your term, they're all for change when it's changing somebody else, but they're not about change when it's changing themselves. So, uh, you know, change is something that's difficult. It's not natural for people in organizations. So, you know, I hear in conversations with chief data officers, you know, all the things like, oh, it really stands for chief diplomacy officer, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, I get questions like, you know, should we come in and should we, you know, uh, move fast and break things? Or should we try to, you know, uh, nurture people along? I don't think there's a single blueprint for any organization. You know, obviously you need to be cognizant if you're leading, but nobody's following. That's not a good outcome. If you're waiting for everybody to get in alignment before you take any step you know, steps, you know, that's not going to take you there. So it, it's really um, in that regard, more of a <clears throat> arts art than a science because it's, um, you know, there's not, you can't just say, oh, well, hire one of these or hire one of those because they may or may not be effective. And a person that can be very effective in one organization by adopting a particular approach can fail miserably in, in another organization. So I think you really have to be highly attuned or get highly attuned with the culture of that organization. And the term that I use more than anything else is readiness. So if an organization is in a state of readiness where they're embracing and saying, help lead us, then that's one case and you can lead in a particular fashion. But if they're sitting there like this, um, then that indicates that there's a, a greater resistance to moving and you have to adapt your leadership style to, to fit that type. So I think, you know, it, it really depends depends upon a realistic assessment of the readiness of an organization and the ability of a data leader to adapt their style to um, 
where the situation what the situation of the organization is mm, yeah interesting very interesting does reporting line and kind of organizational structure does that play a part into how effective a cdao can be like you know does it matter where it fits and who it reports to and uh, you know all of that type of good stuff yeah in my opinion the closer to the business the the, the better uh the more in alignment with the business uh but i have pe- had people point out to me they said well you know we're, we're a technology business so it's all really driven from the technology function so so that's different so you know again it depends upon the the, the nature of your business you know but um Whatever your business is, you know, I think you, it's, it starts with, you know, who are your customers, who you're trying to serve, and what are the functions that are most aligned with that, and having the data functions, the data and analytics functions aligned with the um, customer, ultimately. Yeah. From the research you've done, Randy, has there been a general consensus of where most CDAOs currently sit in terms of of structure is is that kind of prominent predominantly under the cio or are you starting to see more shift towards you know ceo or coo as it were uh well stay tuned because we asked that <laughs> specific question in this year's survey so I'll, I'll know the answer to them in a few weeks we had actually asked that for for a number of years um going back about six or seven years and, and had dropped that um for, for some reason or another but you know at that time there was a heavy concentration under the cio but we've really seen that shift in, in recent years so um and also under chief digital officer chief marketing officer chief transformation officer chief strategy officer in some instances so uh you know chief operating officer so really looking to see what um people say this year but i think it'll be interesting because <clears throat> I, I suspect that in terms of uh, those who report to the chief information officer it will be much you know will be down considerably from where it was 10 years ago where that was you know 80 90 percent reported to the cio yeah absolutely i'd uh, imagine so so look randy really conscious of of time um i guess where i'd love to finish is by asking for your advice for kind of aspiring cdaos so you know that i think is no surprise that most data leaders they, they see that kind of role as the potential pinnacle of of their career right and many people wanting that type of of role but um what's your advice on to, to those types of people in terms of how to position themselves to be in contention for those kind of top you know top level cdao jobs yeah i think People from the data background have to be uh, realistic about what it means to be uh, um, a leader and a C-suite executive. I mean, just because you're the smartest from a data engineering or data architecture, data management perspective, or the smartest from uh, analytics and algorithm perspective, doesn't necessarily mean that you know you're going to be a transformational executive and a leader. And, you know, even with CIOs, the people that survive are ones that know how to manage in the C-suite. They, um, you know, have have toughened up or are realistic about what, what can be achieved and how to force trade in terms of uh, 
getting support for the initiatives the most important. So I think that um, that data and analytics people need to be realistic about what the job entails. And just because you're an expert in data or analytics doesn't necessarily qualify you to be a C-suite leader. And I think that that's what you know many organizations are, are finding to some degree. Um, so, you know, operating the C-suite is an additional set of skills above and beyond just being a data and analytics expert. Yep, yep. Perfect. Well, look, Randy, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Um, we'll be, make sure to um, come knocking at your door when your next lot of research is out. Look, look very interested to to kind of see where these people are now reporting to in the main. But um, yeah, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Great. I hope it was helpful, Kyle. Cheers. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.